Well, today we're in the book of James again, and this series uh, that we've been uh, talking about big faith. And so I encourage you to turn to James chapter 5. We're going to look at a middle section of James chapter 5. And as I was preparing this week, I was thinking, you know, if there's ever a, a theme in James that seems kind of wildly out of touch with some of the things that we experience in our lives, or at least what are the priorities of our culture, it might be the focus of our text today from James. Um, this passage that we'll look at today calls us to self-denial. It calls us to wait without grumbling. It reminds us that God's primary concern isn't your happiness, and that the pain and struggles that you're going through actually might be the very thing that God is using to help grow and mature us into discipleship. And so those are not common themes in our culture. Uh, this is the opposite of a health and wealth gospel. This is the pain and suffering gospel. And it's an important word for us to hear, and James has some good teaching for us on that. So pain and suffering is, is truly on a con- continuum. There's no doubt about that. It's different for every person. Every person here experiences it uh, differently and at different times. Uh, people have different pain thresholds. Some it's really high, some it's really low. Uh, and suffering and pain comes in many forms. And so uh, I just jotted down a whole bunch of random things. I was thinking about what does pain look like? Well, I remember when I was in Bible school many, many, many years ago, and I was working with Boys Brigade in a church, and we uh, did floor hockey, and I remember this one little boy named Jakey, and he was probably about eight years old, and I just knew that Jakey didn't like floor hockey, and he would always come up with any excuse for floor hockey. And one time he came up to me, and he, my kids always love me when I love when I tell this story, and it's like he would put his hands over his mouth and say, Bruce, he says, my lips are chapped, and, and they really hurt. He had a bit of an accent, so that's why I'm talking that way. And, and he says, they really hurt, and I can't play floor hockey, because his lips were chapped. So, I mean, that's a pretty low pain threshold. Um, my brother works in a business in an industry where they fly him around the world, and oftentimes, sometimes he gets to fly first class, and he was telling me how he was with his boss, who always flies first class. And they were going to Japan on business, and his boss in the middle of the flight, he decided to go stretch his legs and wander to the back where the commoners fly. And he came back to my brother, and he goes, I don't know how people fly like that. Like, that's insane. Like, I could never handle that kind of, you know, suffering. Okay. Um, with physical pain, um, I remember when I was uh, just out of high school working for a carpet company, and I, you know, those push-behind kind of uh, forklifts, big pole on it, would have a roll of carpet on that pole, you know, lots of weight, and it had tracks, like metal tracks that would, the hydraulics would lift this thing up and down, and I was moving some carpet around, and then I had to get onto the forklift, and I climbed on top of it, and I put my hand on the racks, and they sometimes stuck, I noticed, they weren't always fluid, and um, this is not good workers' compensation stuff. And I, I put my hand on it, and I was reaching for something, and it decided at that moment that it would drop. And uh, my fingers got caught in between the metal plates that actually push up the carpet. And then I had to reach down and try to figure out which button do I push to release my fingers. Um, are you wincing yet? It was painful, but thankfully my fingers are fine. Maybe it was a broken heart in high school that some of you experienced or are experiencing. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's uncertainty of a financial future. Maybe it's the loneliness and suffering of mental health issues that you walk with day by day and that you feel like people do not understand. 
Maybe it's what some people in our church have experienced of being displaced by war and actually experiencing all kinds of pain and persecution and even being in a refugee camp. Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis or some kind of illness that puts the whole trajectory of your life in question. Maybe it's a difficult, seemingly impossible relationship that just continues to cause pain in all kinds of directions. Maybe it's the death of somebody that you love, whether it's sudden and unexpected or it's the long, slow outcome of aging or a terrible disease. I mean, you might rightly say, well, Bruce, how can you compare chapped lips to the death of my child? Well, you're right, I can't, and I shouldn't, and I'm not. But my point is, is that we, we do tend to kind of compare and experience pain on a whole continuum of experiences, don't we? There's physical pain, emotional pain, relationship pain, loss of hope and faith kinds of pain. There's just lots of different kinds of pain that people experience. And we've been talking in these last number of weeks about humility and this idea that humility, you might think of it as uh, thinking about yourself rightly and, and understanding yourself in a, in, a, in a fair and assessment kind of, of way. And so last week we, we talked about that and we talked about the, being careful how we judge other people. And so last week we talked about money and, and how we, we need to assess ourselves rightly and be careful how we judge other people in regards to money. And this week we want to talk about it in regards to suffering. Because oftentimes we, we can compare, just similar to money, we can compare in our favor in one way or another when it comes to how hard we have it or what we're experiencing. And we can easily think uh, about other people, well, they, they just don't understand how hard I have it. And if they only knew what I was going through. And why is it that life is so easy for them and that everything comes so naturally and good to them and they don't have any hardships? You ever find yourselves wondering that or asking those questions? I do at times. I think we all do. We, we, we tend to compare and, and even subtly kind of wonder about our suffering in light of others. But suffering and difficulty and pain and hardship comes in many different forms to every one of us. And we experience it and feel it differently, but we all experience it at some point in our lives. And so James points out in this letter and in this section that we're looking at today, he reminds us that it is often our pain and our suffering that God uses in really significant ways to grow us in our faith. James has written to people who have real life issues. They struggle with money and family issues. They struggle with taming their tongue and the words that they say and don't say. They struggle with living out their faith in ways that are obedient to God and make sense in the world. So they struggle just like we do. They were a people who had challenges and pain and and things that were raging within their heads and in their hearts and also pain and conflict that was raging around them in their church and in their families and in relationships that were around them. And so they could identify too. And James encourages us, challenges us to view our struggles in a certain light, to have it cause us to grow a bigger faith and to look from a different perspective. So in James 5, 7 to 9, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. 
You see, waiting is hard at the best of times, isn't it? But James is talking about waiting in the midst of very difficult times when it's very troubling times and painful times and difficult circumstances. And we don't know exactly what he's referring to, but we experience those things in our lives, don't we? And so waiting in any form, I think, is really hard in our instant gratification culture, isn't it? We, we, We like to have coffee quick and we like to have it hot. We want quick responses to our emails and our texts from people. We want quick answers to our questions. We want God to show up and respond and fix things and change our circumstances, and we don't want to wait for anything. And this is not only about waiting, but it's about waiting in difficult circumstances. And James is talking about perseverance and waiting with calm and expectancy. And James says to wait knowing and understanding that God is ultimately in control and Jesus is coming back. And he says we wait with a different view on things. That Jesus alone is in charge of history. That he's still active and involved in your life. And he gives this example from everyday life. He talks about it like a farmer who waits for the seasons to come and the rains to come. It's a waiting that you can trust that you have done all that you can do And now it's in God's hands. Now God needs to show up and change things. You've worked the soil. You've tended the weeds. You've planted good seeds. And now you wait because only God can cause a crop to grow. Only God can bring the rains. And so James is reminding us that we too have a part to play in this, don't we? I mean, he's been emphasizing that over and over again in this letter about the fact that our works matter, our lives matter, the actions that we do, how we live matters. It doesn't save us or earn trust or love from God, but it reflects the faith that we have in God. The fact that we live out our faith, even in hard times. And so, when we do that, we ultimately trust God. We do our part, and then place the things that we cannot control in God's hands and say, Lord, these are yours. And so farmers also understand that there are seasons. And that seasons come and go. That summer fades into the fall, then Winter comes, but the winter won't last. It too has an end, we trust. And slowly the warmth of spring comes and things start to grow and to green up and rains come and new growth becomes evident. So that's what James is pointing to. And he's saying, you know, you need to trust the seasons like the farmer that in due time God will once again bring the rains that are absolutely necessary to bring growth and life. And he says in a similar way, we need to Live expectantly for Jesus' return. That ultimately there is a day, no matter what you are experiencing here on earth, there is a day when God will bring all things to completion. And he says where there will be no more tears and no more pain and hurt. And as we place our faith in Jesus, that we will be with him. And so like a crop maturing and preparing for harvest, we are, to, we are made to be with Christ. But it's often in the crucible of difficulty that God prepares us for that day when we will be with Him. And so this was James' word to the church. He says, wait, but actively wait. Don't just wait passively doing nothing. Wait actively with expectation that Jesus will return. And as you're waiting, be involved in God's mission in the world. To be the church without grumbling or complaining even when things are hard or not the way that you like them. Let me say that again. That's a good word. And to be the church without grumbling or complaining. Because you know what? Grumbling and complaining keeps us from God's mission in the world. 
The church still needs to proclaim the gospel, disciple its people, care for the poor and needy and vulnerable, and correct understanding and practice of faith and deal with community dynamics and on and on. The church still needs to be the church. But he's saying, know that Jesus is, is returning. Jesus is coming again. And it changes how we wait as we proclaim the gospel and live out our faith. Then James goes on and he gives some specific examples from their prophetic history that they would have known and understand. In verse 10 and 11 of chapter 5, he, he explains. He says, For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. You know, first, James mentions the suffering and waiting of the prophets. Because the prophets, as we know, and as James knew, they were often ones who would proclaim words from God and promises from God that God had given them to give to the people, and then they would have to wait. Say, God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to fulfill this prophet, this prophecy? And when, when are you going to act? And so it also reminds us that they were given great honor, those who endure in suffering. As it says in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. Very similar to what James said. So these prophets endured, they waited, and often didn't see the end result. As it goes on to say in Hebrews 11, 13, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. So a similar way, James is saying that through the course of history and God's great story in the world, there are people like these prophets and there are faith-filled people like you and me, who can walk and live and see and know these, these promises of God and not see them fulfilled in our lifetime, and we are to wait differently, and sometimes even in suffering. And then James points to the story of Job, probably one of the most powerful stories of suffering that we see in Scripture. Some of you have read it many, many times, I know that. It's, it's, it's even painful and hard to read at times, but it's such an important story that helps us understand the journey of suffering. So along with the prophets, Job was also one who understood suffering, and we can learn much from his story that James points to today. Now, we don't have time to go through all 42 chapters of the book of Job today, but let me just summarize a few things, and we'll touch on it as James did. You see, Job was like the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffett of his day. They could have made a movie of him called The Richest Man in the World. You read in Job 1, it introduces Job this way. It says that he was blameless. It says that he was a man of complete integrity. He feared God, stay away, stayed away from evil. And he had all this wealth. And they list a whole bunch of things. He had the blessing of seven sons and three daughters and 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He had many servants. And it says he was, in fact, the richest man in that area of the world. And yet, despite his godliness, Despite his obedience, despite his faithfulness, God allows Satan to bring unbelievable grief to his life. And this is difficult to understand. It's difficult theology. But we see in this story, if you read the account, that God is not causing his pain, but he's allowing it to happen. And Job's world collapses. 
as he's reduced to poverty, as his livestock, livestock were all killed, and then his son's house collapses, and all his children are killed as well, all ten of them. It's an unimaginable suffering. And what's be- bewildering is the undeserved nature of it, as Job was as innocent as they come. But then as you read the, f- the story, you might think, well, thankfully Job had friends. Friends who come and they spend time with him. It says in Job 2, verse 11, and following, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. They were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. I mean, they started really well. They sat with him for seven days and nights. They didn't say anything. They could just see the suffering and the pain in Job's life and in his face, and they just were with him. But then Job's friends, they started to kind of have this need to now make sense of this and to explain maybe to Job what was happening. And and as you read the story of Job, it becomes this unsettling story of how they turn on him and they tell him that there must be sin in his life because this is why God is bringing this punishment to them. And they're quite relentless, actually. And they, they talk about this of Job's suffering, and yet Job never sinned nor blamed God, but he worshipped God, as it records in the story. Now, Job cried out to God, no doubt. He, he was very honest with his emotions. He was really raw with his pain. He cried out to God in his sadness, sadness anger, depression, everything. It says how he even cried out for a rescuer, a mediator between him and God pointing ahead to Jesus. It says in Job 9.33, he says, if only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. He felt this incredible chasm between him and the living God, and he's longing for a mediator. And it points ahead to Jesus Christ. So if you read the whole account of Job, you see that he didn't avoid the horror of his predicament. He confronted it directly. He was really raw and honest with it. And we need to do the same thing. God can handle whatever we throw at Him just like we see in the book of Job. And I think it's important for us to do that in our pain and suffering because when we don't process and aren't honest with what we're experiencing, we tend to leak. And we leak into the lives of other people, don't we? And it kind of makes a mess around us because we know that hurting people hurt people. And so Job, he is pretty raw and honest with his emotions and he cries out to God and we see that throughout this story. And the story ends with God restoring Job's health, even his family and his reputation, but it comes at an incredible cost. And it's a powerful testimony for all the ages of suffering. And I think the story of Job's pain and what James is pointing us to here is that suffering and patience and faithfulness, it reminds us to trust God in the midst of that, in the midst of death and disappointments in life when pain and suffering come our way, regardless of how they come to us. And it also points us ahead to this central message of Jesus Christ that suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation. And that in order to embrace the resurrection hope, we also have to embrace the cross. And so James is teaching us about big faith and about the role of suffering. And he seemed to have this right in his mind from the beginning of his letter. It's an integral part of his teaching on discipleship, to grow from immaturity to maturity, from foolishness to wisdom, and it's critical to becoming more like Jesus and to have a bigger faith. He says in James 1, verse 2 and 4, if you remember back or look back to the first chapter, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. 
For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Or in the NIV, and I know many people have even memorized this verse here, but it says it this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its works so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James clearly has a theology of suffering. It's part of his understanding of God and his understanding of what discipleship is. Pastor and author by the name of Ed Shaw who, who writes about same-sex attraction in the church. And he writes about his own story in that. But in doing so, I, I feel like he, he writes a wonderful book on discipleship. And there are so many pieces in there that are so helpful. And one of his key contentions in this book is that the church has lost its understanding of the role of suffering in our discipleship. What you might call a theology of suffering. And he writes that we often think, well, surely God just wants me to be happy. And so we justify our actions based on the idea that God, uh, that idea of God. And yet, what would lead us to that notion that the greatest authority in the world is that God wants us to be happy? So then suffering does not have a place in our theology of God. And soon, whatever makes us happiest is the mantra of our age. And so this passage that James is teaching on becomes remarkably out of touch with our culture in different ways, which is why the authority of God and Scripture is so important to our discipleship. And this lack of theology of suffering leads to all kinds of different roads and paths. And I think is part of even in our culture as you think about how we've moved in the direction of increasing allowment for medical assistance in dying because we don't want suffering and we see that as one maybe current example of that and so jesus's call is to pick up our cross and to follow him and it reminds us to have a theology of suffering that is critical for our faith and our growth and this is what james is teaching us in this section i want to conclude with just a five thoughts of what might be part of a theology of suffering. And as I've been thinking and praying through this section and even in my own life and I observe the suffering of others, here are a few things that come to my mind that could be part of a theology of suffering for us. First of all, we all experience suffering. I think that's true for every one of us. Uh, we, we experience it in different forms. There are different seasons. There are different degrees. And yes, we might compare to each other, but the reality is, is that we all face it in some form at some time. And so, how do we prepare for that? We need to know that it will come in different seasons of our lives. It's part of our human condition. Secondly, I would say that we need to hold God's sovereignty and our choice in tension. And we've talked about this oftentimes, but we see this so clearly in the book of Job, how God did not cause this to happen, but He allowed it to happen. And I think there's a difference. And some would hold a very strong view of God's sovereignty and see that God directly causes all things to happen, good or bad. I would view it differently than that. And we could spend lots of time talking about this area. This is Theologians have talked about this for centuries. We're not going to solve it here today. But this tension that God is ultimately sovereign and in control and yet gives us the ability to choose and have free choice. And to hold those things together even in the midst of our suffering. It's one of the greatest mysteries of God. And it's one of the things that Job was struggling with. Thirdly, I would say, and maybe... One of the most practical ones from the teaching today was that God uses suffering to develop our character and faith. 
We see that in James chapter 1. We see that in the story of Job. We know that from our own experience. I've talked to people even this morning who give testimony to that where they have experienced growth in their relationship with God and their own faith because of the suffering that they've gone through. And the fact that our happiness and our comfort isn't God's biggest priority, but that He's with us in the midst of our pain. And He cares, and He loves us, and He gives us strength through it. And we see that in Jesus Christ as He goes to the cross. And today we remember and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, and we remember how Christ suffered for us. And it's this model that we are to follow in His footsteps as we follow Jesus. Embracing the cross through which resurrection hope comes. So maybe we need to shift our focus rather from what is happening to us and to rather look at what God is forming in us through our challenges. Because often our character is forged on the anvil of difficulty. And fourthly, I would suggest that pursuing the why doesn't usually help. We often want to do that, right? Like it's our human nature And God has wired us that way. I mean, we want to know why. We want to understand, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening to these other people? And so sometimes we we come out with these simplistic answers that feel very trivial and actually are almost, almost more hurtful. But we see that in Job's friends. I mean, they wanted to know the why. They pursued the why. It's like, why is this happening to you, Job? And they had answers. They thought good answers for that. They felt that they had to protect God's character somehow, blaming Job that it was his sin that caused this. And I've found that so often when people relentlessly pursue the why, it seldom helps. And it can often even just cause more pain and bitterness. And again, what's more helpful is to pursue what God wants to do in me throughout this difficult season. And then fifthly and lastly, just this truth that we can all be better friends to those who suffer. I think that's so true. I think we can all learn in different ways. Job's friends, they started out great. They sat with him for seven days without saying a word, but they ended so badly because they were pursuing the why. And they needed a good answer. And I often think that when we encounter people in suffering, one of the best things that we can do is just be present and keep our mouths shut. And not offer simplistic answers, but just be there. And cry with them and grieve with them. There comes a time when we speak these truths, but the timing is so important. So may God give us the grace and the ability to be better friends. So these are some of the lessons of Job. As he teaches us the teachings of James that he wants to show us through ways that we can grow in this area of suffering and have a bigger faith. I would invite you to stand and I want to invite the worship team up. And at this time, I'd also dismiss the parents as they go and collect their kids and come back into the service. And we're going to just sing again a number of songs to respond. And in a few moments, we'll take communion together and we'll remember and we'll celebrate in that way. But as the worship team leads us in this next song, it's a song that is called, O Come to the Altar. And here are the words, some of the words from this song. It's, are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. So even as we sing this song, I want to invite you, if it is something that is a tangible expression of coming to the altar, even if you want to come to these steps and kneel on these steps and 
and just pray and cry out to God, this altar is open and we invite you to come to the altar. Maybe you do want to stay in your seat and do it there, but maybe for some it needs this physical expression of coming forward and just crying out to God and coming to the altar. But we want to respond, knowing that we have a God who loves us, who knows the pain that we're going through, who knows the challenges that we face, and He cares deeply, and that we can bring our burdens to Him, and that He might cause bigger faith and more growth in us. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we thank You that you modeled suffering and going to the cross for us as the ultimate sacrifice that we can't even imagine the suffering that you went through. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a God who goes first and you call us to follow. We know, and some of us know only too intimately well, that our human experience is pain and suffering and we face it. And so Lord, help us not to run from it or think that that's, well, that's never part of your design or your will, but that you actually use these things to draw us to you and grow us in faith. So Lord, I pray for your comfort and your peace. And we want to just come to the altar now and bring these things before you because you are a loving God who cares and you carry us in the midst of those times. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.